It is August 8th, 1888. And you, dear ass kicker, wake up with a bitch of a headache on the deck of your new home, a sailing ship already at sea. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Shanghai. It is a grand Portland tradition. The sudden indentured servitude, years at sea with shitty food and constant work, for some poor sap who had a little too much friendship and drink at the Snug Harbor Saloon. And some of the old-timers recall, without shame, the period where men were shanghaied by the hundreds and virtually sold into slavery onto the high seas. For the ships of the seven oceans, mostly sailing vessels then, had to be manned, and it was hard to get sailors. Many a luckless hobo recovered from a drunken debauch on Burnside Street to find himself climbing the rat lines of a brigantine bound for China, Egypt, England, Norway, or some other far goal. Some of the Shanghaiers are still living at ease in Portland on the money they made, furnishing unwilling crews to the ships that made Portland a port of call in their rovings around the world. The Oregonian, 1926. All Shanghaiers are crimps, but not all crimps are Shanghaiers. When a master of a ship hath lost any of his hands, he applies to a crimp who makes it his business to seduce the men belonging to some other ship. A recent Shanghai Tunnels tour identified the term crimp as meaning kidnapping men and selling them to sea captains who force them to work for nothing. A shipmaster described what happened when he arrived in Portland, Oregon in November of 1898. Nine of my men deserted, and out of those, I don't think one intended to desert when we arrived. The first two deserted at night, and the next morning, those men passed my ship on board of a bark bound out. I shipped nine men in place of those I lost. Two of these, I found, never were at sea before. The charge for each man was $5 per month, with 55 in advance and blood money. Watch out, here I come. come, 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 come.
There once existed in old-timey Portland an almost perfect organism for siphoning money away from sailors and ship captains and into the pockets of the crimp. A sailor in port in Portland was often allowed to draw up to $40 as an advance on their future service at sea. This, in turn, could then be paid by their ship's captain as an advance to the sailor's boarding house owner, their haberdasher, or even the local saloon keeper. Oftentimes, these establishments were owned by the very crimps who were sailing the sailors to the captains in the first place. So, a crimp sells a sailor to a captain. The crimp gets $10 in so-called blood money, a $5 finding fee for a middleman who may or may not have been the crimp himself. And finally, the crimp then demands that the captain pay the sailors boarding, clothing, and saloon expenses against the yet-to-be-earned sailor's salary, all of which saw a ship captain out quite a bit of dough to get a crew of loggers, farmers, or any other traveling through town riffraff that might have fallen into the clutches of the crimp. We had a chance to sit down with historian Finn John, who has recently published a wonderful book that details the subject of crimping very well, Wicked Portland, the wild and lusty underworld of a frontier seaport town. Finn John on Shanghaiers and crimps. Originally, the, the, the practice of crimping goes way back in, in deep water port towns. And the idea was you'd set up a, um, a boarding house for sailors and they'd stay in there for free, except it wasn't really free. It was actually credit. So what you'd do is you'd, uh, you'd set up a boarding house and, um, and, and people could stay in it for free, except it, it wasn't really free, right? It was, it was on credit. And the way that you would discharge that credit is either by bringing some money in and giving it to the owner of the boarding house or by going out on a ship that just happened to need a uh, sailor to, to help run the place. So it was like a kind of a forced indebtedness system of making people go to sea. As well as being hoteliers, to use the term rather loosely, it seems as if many crimps came from the martial tradition, with a good number of them being boxers before during or after their crimping careers. In addition to Larry Sullivan and Jim Turk, mysterious Billy Smith, also known as the dirtiest fighter who ever lived, won the welterweight championship in 1892 and also ran a sailor's boarding house. His place of business was on the east side and fittingly for a sports champion, it was at the present site of the Memorial Coliseum. The trouble boys came in, I guess they'd been Bunko Kelly was quite the crimp, an all-star of Portland history. Originally hailing from Liverpool, he came to Portland in a familiar fashion to his vocation. In 1879, he went over the side of a ship when it was docked on the Willamette. He was a small, undersized man, but heavy. Some say his body resembled that of a gorilla, and his strength was reported to have matched the wild beasts. 
His eyes were described as being a cold, steely blue, and it was noted that they shifted uneasily in a seamed and lined face wrinkled with all sorts of wickedness and sin. One of Kelly's claims to fame was securing a crew of 50 men in just three hours. An anecdote that has to be one of the greatest legends of Bridgetown, Shanghai eminence has been attributed to Kelly as well. In October of 1890, he was reported to have sold a wooden cigar store Indian from the front of Wildman's tobacco shop as an able-bodied seaman to an unsuspecting British captain. In addition, Bunkle Kelly's been attributed with pulling perhaps the most preeminent ploy of Portland's past. Near Second and Morrison was a drinking establishment named the Snug Harbor Saloon. On a dark and very rainy October night in 1893, Bunko Kelly came strolling by with a tall order to fill. 24 men for the British ship The Flying Prince bound for China. Next to the Snug Harbor Saloon, a trap door was laying open with a strange odor spilling out across the wet cobblestones. Bunko, naturally, went down the attached ladder to investigate. In the dim lantern light, the story goes, Kelly saw that the basement was filled with large barrels, and in the shadows, conveniently for Kelly, were 24 incapacitated men. In fact, they were all of them literally dead or dying. The men must have thought they stumbled into the storeroom of the Snug Harbor and imagine their delight in finding barrel upon barrel of delicious booze. In actuality, they had stumbled into the basement of the adjoining business, Johnson & Sons Undertaker Parlors, and the barrels were filled with delicious embalming fluid. Having drunk their fill, some of the men were dying before Bunko's eyes with deep, heavy gasps. In an outburst sure to make the top 10 list of awesome historical Portland lines, Bunko exclaimed, Them stips have been drinking Undertaker's dope. Bunko Kelly quickly swung into action. Kelly climbed the ladder and ran down the road to the Mariner's Rest, his sailor boarding house. He roused five stout men and a cab and headed back to the undertakers. Finding the weather turning worse and accumulating more cabs in the process, the motley crew drove swiftly through the stinging sleet, ending up at the trapdoor of Johnson & Sons. Kelly promised the men $5 once the sailors were aboard the ship. The men from the boarding house went down the ladder and carried the 24 corpses and soon-to-be corpses, back up and into the waiting cabs. Drive as fast as you can to the Ainsworth dock, he told the driver, and sparks from the hooves on the street marked the progress of this ghoulish parade. Eventually, they ended up at the Flying Prince. The captain of the Flying Prince was quite impressed, noting that he had not seen so many men so drunk at once before 
and paid $30 each for the two dozen men. Bunko Kelly remarked that it cost him a pretty penny to get the men in such a state and quickly pocketed the money and rapidly departed the Flying Prince. Larry Sullivan may have been the true king of Portland crimps. He was quite a boxer, and his most famous bout was fought just across the Columbia in Washington. Sullivan fought a London Rules bare-knuckle match against sailor boarding house owner Tom Ward that lasted 77 rounds. Sullivan's boarding house was on 2nd and Gleason, and he used to stand guard over the place himself with a shotgun from a second-story window. A famous shanghai of sorts has to be attributed to Larry Sullivan. Historian Finn John explains. That was um, um, Aquila Ernest Clark, who um, basically he was, uh, he was invited to come to a birthday party for, for Larry Sullivan, which was being held on the steamboat Aralda which was, um, was kind of a misfit steamer that had been built. It was too big for the Willamette and too little for the Columbia. So it was doing this. And so they were on there getting drunk and having all kinds of fun. And there were these really, really friendly girls that just wanted to dance with them and help them drink their drinks. And, and, and boy, they were just all, um, well, of course, they had been hired for the occasion. And they were all really tipsy when they got to Astoria, and so they passed around a... Have you told me the story? No. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, so they're all really tipsy, yeah. and, and the, the, the guy that, they, that was their kind of host, Larry Sullivan, was kind of in the background. He might not even have been there. Um, their host was a guy who called himself Mr. Smith. I would bet you even money that that was Bunko Kelly, just mm. from the, um, the general description of how he was. But he passed around a... a, a piece of paper and said, okay, everybody sign your name on this, this, this register here so we can make sure that you're all here when we come back in from Astoria. We don't want to leave anybody here when we go back to Portland. So they all signed their names. And um, it turned out those were the ship's articles. When they signed that piece of paper, they changed professions. And so all that was left was to get them out to the, um, the ship, which was the TF Oaks. And... Um, uh, get out the guns and take them below decks and tie them up until they get so that that was it they were um they were gone you know and that's that's one of those stories that I've kind of heard about and I've read about of course I read it in your book Wicked Portland you know it seems to me like they spent a lot of money entertaining these fellows I mean they had the girls oh they got it back they had the steamboat they had I think there were stories of uh, shrimp or lobster or something like that yeah. and salmon and pork and roast beef but they got it back they put on the dog yeah yeah well see that was the other cool thing it was one of the i don't know if it was you or somebody that posted recently on facebook an ad from the oregonian for jim turk as a as a as a um clothier clothing a haberdasher i guess you could say a, a, a selling clothing and specializing in sailors this was another business that was just famous for this they would they would sell stuff to the sailors 
and then charge it through their advances against their wages. So they'd go to the captain and they'd say, hey, you know, you're going to be at sea with this guy for three months, in which time he's going to make $90, and he owes 60 of that to me. So um, how about it? And the captain wouldn't have a dog in the fight. He'd be like, oh, okay. Um, oh, I see he's, he's signed the, the paper there. Okay, good. Um, here you go. And so it was that um, Mr. Mr. Clark actually showed up at, um, at a French port and found out that he had paid $60 for his voyage, for his birthday party that, that he had thought was free. Crimp Jim Turk was originally from Pendleton, Oregon, but he came to Portland and set up a sailor boarding house on Cooch Street between 1st and 2nd. His crimping knew no loyalties, and it was claimed that he sold his own son into servitude after the boy fell into drink and fast women. He also apparently shanghaied a doctor, who later sent Turk a thank-you bouquet. The physician had suffered from TB, and the six months at sea had cleared up his illness. If you wanted a crew in Portland, you had to connive with the crimps. Captain of the Duchess Olga, Pierre Pichery, found Portland to be the roughest waterfront in the world. The Barbary Coast couldn't hold a candle to Portland, he was reported to have said. And Pichery was rightfully pissed. Not only had the P-Town crimps shanghaied his crew, but they had the balls to sell the very same semen back to him. Finn John on what is Shanghai. Shanghaiing is this, the process where you um, you get clobbered on the head, or maybe you go out drinking with some new friend that you've made, and um, after you after you've knocked back your shot, all of a sudden you feel really woozy, and then you wake up the next morning and you're on the foredeck of a four-masted bark uh, heading out across the Columbia River bar, and there's somebody kicking you in the ribs and telling you to get your ass up and get to work. That would be the Shanghaiing thing. Edward Ayers of Dakota City, Nebraska, is just such a case. In March of 1906, Ayers was staying at a Portland hotel where he claims to have been drugged and woke up two days later on an English tramp steamer along with two other crimped souls, musicians from a circus band that had been obtained for $10 each. Ayers obtained his freedom when he went over the side of the steamer near Valdivia, Chile, and walked across the southern part of the continent, only to be captured by a Spanish ship's crew and carried to Australia. I fell into the ocean and you became my wife Rested all against the sea to have a better Depression and desperation, and essentially slavery for several years, often gripped these new sailors. One case demonstrates the anguish of some of these men. In 1912, Chester McNeil had joined aboard the British ship Segura. 
another unidentified man aboard had been shanghaied onto the crew. Described as crazed with drink, this poor fellow jumped overboard while at sea, somewhere between Astoria and San Francisco. By the time the crew could get a serviceable boat into the water, the distraught man was gone. We can bring back the old days again When all the world is green As we stated before, Portland's reputation among seafarers was literally the worst port in the world for Shanghai. Some at home were pretty dissatisfied with this status. I believe that there is a desire on the part of most law-abiding citizens of this state to purge its ports of the reputation they have unhappily acquired for the most imprudent extortion on the part of the crimps of any in the world. San Francisco was considered, of course, quite bad, but in that port, a captain was allowed to refuse to receive specific men, a man that he felt was incapable of the work or perhaps a danger to his crew. Not in Portland, baby. The motto of the Crimson P-Town was all or none. The ship captain had to take all the victims or be forced to sit in the Willamette, crewless. Why did anyone put up with this system? In 1888, an English investigative report authored an article entitled Crimps in American Ports, which detailed the subject. In examining Portland, Oregon, the correspondent determined that it was simply impossible to man a ship without the aid of crimps. It is charged here in Portland that captains often connive at the desertion of their crews and pocket the wages due them, and then go cahoots with the crimps in the blood money they pay for a new crew, thus robbing both the sailors and the owners of the ship. On the arrival of a ship, the crimps go on board, and by plying the sailors with liquor, holding forth inducements of higher wages, induce them to desert, and how they are then kept stupefied with drink, and perhaps some night shanghaied on board a strange ship bound for Europe. It is in vain that they protest that they did not sign the ship's articles. The forged signature is evidence. Crimps can always find idle vagabonds to present themselves at the shipping offices to sign articles in the names of men who lie drugged in the boarding houses, ready for transportation to the ship, waiting off the wharf. So why didn't the ship captains just keep the crimps off of their ship and not deal with the boarding house masters? You see, their interests were in the system as well. Listen to the captain of the Howard D. Troop as he was asked this question. It isn't for our interest to do so. If my men desert, they leave their wages with the ship. I'm here for cargo and may have to lie in port three or four months. If the men remain at the ship, I'll have to pay them wages. If they desert, they'll leave what is due, and when I'm ready to sail, I can ship a new crew. Finn John helps explain the arrangement. See, before this, the, uh, the, the ship captains really enjoyed seeing the crimps coming up because they, especially the British ones, because the British ones wouldn't pay their guys until they got home. So if they could get them, you know, coaxed off the ship uh, and, um, you know, the, the crimps would come up, they'd coax them off the ship and the captains would just kind of like, 
stroke their chins and smile because they knew that that meant that they could bank all the money that they would have otherwise had to pay these guys when they got back to Liverpool. The crimps were making money. The ship captains were making money. The harbor master and the police were surely in on it. And the ship's owner wouldn't be in the business if he wasn't making money too. Everybody had their fingers in the pie, bellied up to the buffet, and they were all bringing in the dough, except for the poor, lowly sailor who was straight up getting fucked. The stories of the crimps and the tales of the days of Shanghai are deeply rooted in Portland's history. They are tragic tales and something we likely shouldn't be too proud of. But now that we're several generations removed from these horrific acts, they're kind of fun to retell and ponder on. But how much of what we hear today is actually true? How much is entirely fabricated and presented as fact? And does it really matter when exploring and pondering the heritage of our city? These are some of the questions that we'll explore in the next episode, Shanghai in Portland, Part 2. And I certainly hope that you'll tune into that selection as well. Just watch your back, bitches. I might come up at you with a roofie, a blackjack, and a bill to Dirty Doug's boarding house. substance of my soul and I have filled this void with things unreal and all the while my character it steals thank you for listening ass kickers and be on the lookout for future podcasts from orhistory.com we hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindberg. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook the email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't partake of Doug's drink special. I think it's a barrel of embalming fluid. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick-ass!
gone too far this time You have neither reason nor rhyme With which to take this home But this so rightfully mine ORhistory.com